In this episode, I'm joined by Mike Crowley, Buddhist Lama, musician, composer, and author of *Secret Drugs of Buddhism*, *Psychedelic Sacraments*, and *The Origins of the Vajrayana*. We learn about Mike's childhood as the son of a psychopath and his extensive experimentation with all manner of drugs and psychoactive substances. Mike recalls his encounters with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and his seven-year apprenticeship with Lama Yungdrung, which eventually resulted in Mike becoming a Lama himself. Mike reveals details of his training and experiences practicing the yogas of Naropa, including dream yoga, tummo, and more. Mike also lays out his argument that psychedelic sacrament was an essential part of Buddhist Vajrayana, discussing symbolism in sacred art, references in hagiographical accounts, and artifacts of psychedelic use in modern practice forms. Mike also discusses how to transform negative emotion into wisdom and compares Taoist inner alchemy with the inner yogas of Tibet. So, without further ado, Mike Crowley. Mike Crowley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Crowley, that's quite correct. Mm-hmm. Where um, I'm from the um, Irish Crowleys and not the Cheshire Crowleys, right. which are far, far smaller than the Crowleys. But every time I go to a new doctor's office or a hospital or whatever, they always address me as Mr. Crowley. They've been reading far too much of Alistair. <laughs> well, funnily enough, Ozzy Osbourne, in his tune, Mr. Crowley, famously mispronounces Alistair Crowley's name as yes. Mr. Crowley. So it's... And it's... I, there, were, there used to be, when I lived in San Jose, there was a local blockbuster video store, and the entire staff would burst into Mr. Crowley whenever I stepped into the store. So uh, I'm quite used to that. Thank you. Uh, most viewers and listeners will be aware of you, uh, aware of your book, The Secret Drugs of Buddhism, Psychedelic Sacraments and the Origins of the Vajrayana. And, uh, but uh, you were telling me before, as we were winding up for this conversation, that actually you've just completed two further books. Yes. Um, Psychedelic Buddhism is one which is due to be published either toward the end of this year or the beginning of next by Inner Traditions. And um, and I finished my memoirs in record time, uh, given the impetus of the forest fire, which is only two miles away and uh, gradually creeping towards my farm. So uh, um, expect that probably by Christmas of uh, 2022. Um, there are probably some surprises in there, but um, not for me, of course, but for the reader. <laughs> yeah, you said record time. You were telling me you did it the entire thing in a week. That's staggering. Yeah, that's correct. Um, but basically, I had it all in my memory, so I just had to write it down. But I'd been shilly-shallying, and actually, um, I have attempted to write it twice before, but some of the passages were too grueling for me, even at this distance in time, and they would end up with me in tears and depressed for the next two or three weeks. But it seems that um, given the um, uh, the 
the nearness of the forest fire, um, it just you know lit a fire under my ass, I guess, and um, I just like banged it out without too much thought. Um, of course, I it was enough thought to get the uh, um, the sentences composed correctly and uh, the the punctuation in the right place and so on. Uh, but I didn't stop to dwell on the uh, memories, um, which is what hung me up the first two times. And Shulgin has been nagging me for 25 years. Every time I see her, she says, have you started your memoirs yet? Or have you finished your memoirs yet? You know, um, and I sheepishly have to uh, admit to her that, no, I haven't touched them since I saw her last. Um, but actually, just a couple of days ago, I sent her um, an unedited copy of uh, of the memoirs, and uh, she was um, thoroughly pleased with the uh, with the receipt of it. I've still got to um, uh, hear her comments on it, um, but there you go. Mm, wonderful. I'm curious, what category of memories had such an emotional effect on you? Well, mostly my childhood, and um, my uh, my father was a psychopath, by the way. Um, he was also an alcoholic and, um, and consumer of any and every drug he could get his hands on. But he was, when I say he was a psychopath, I mean that he was diagnosed in a mental hospital as being a psychopath. This is not just some um adventitious um uh adjective which i've applied to him he was actually diagnosed by specialists and um, um he had zero empathy and um no concept of conscience at all in fact he um said on many occasions that conscience was a contract played on the uh, um, the masses uh, who foolishly fell for it, but he was smart and he had seen through it. And well, so um, yeah, it, it resulted in, in him having numerous affairs and sometimes um, bringing the, uh, um, his boyfriends or girlfriends home to live with him. Um, and just uh, my mother was just expected to put up with them, which um, I have uh, I've detailed in the book and um, shown some of her, um, her responses to his behavior. So yeah, that's that's kind of what the book's about. And um, it's really only the book takes you up to my mid 20s. And uh, I perhaps will continue after that with a second book. Who knows? But I think the most exciting things happened in my early years. Mm. Well, my first set of questions for you actually was going to be about your upbringing and the context of your childhood and your education, actually. I didn't know, of course, about what you've just told me now, 
but I'm curious, um, perhaps, you know, we can move on from it if you don't want to talk about it. But I'm curious what effect that childhood context had on you and how that has played itself out in your life as you've progressed and become involved with all the things you've been involved in, music, Tibetan Buddhism, psychedelics, and so on? Um, well, it gave me an open-minded attitude to all drugs I investigated about every one that I could get hold of, except cocaine. Never did try that in my youth. Tried it once later, was not impressed. Um, but everything including opium was um was tried and um i looked at them fairly dispassionately and uh, didn't just go on my emotions as to whether um it felt good or not i just assumed that they all made you feel good i looked at the after effects and the and the direct effects um, and concluded that um, the psychedelics were actually the most interesting, um, not addictive, and um, gave you insight into your, um, your own past and to um, various um, states which are only available as um, as the product of meditation otherwise. Um, one particular um, um, event uh, occurred when I took a quantity of um, cannabis tincture, which was at the time, believe it or not, it was legal until 1970. And they realized that they had, uh, oh, excuse me, I have a cat here once cuddling. Um, but, um, uh, the, the members of parliament realized that they'd left it out of the 1927 um, cannabis uh, legislation and swiftly made it illegal in uh, 1970. It was brought about because some silly hippie, knowing that cannabis uh, was harmless, drank a whole bottle of cannabis tincture, not realizing that it was an alcoholic solution and the alcohol would kill him, which it did. And so he, he died after drinking a bottle of tincture and they swiftly made it illegal. Um, but on this occasion, I had uh, consumed a teaspoon of tincture and to prevent myself from um, from becoming uh, unduly somnolent in the experience, I took a third of a uh, tablet, which has later become notorious as orange sunshine. It was known to us as just sunshine. And um, I had what was known in the um, in the literature and in in Buddhist tradition as a vision of Indra's net. It's described in that that book 
secret drugs of Buddhism. Um, but it gave me the insight that either uh, this was a uh, a an experience only um, given to meditators in the past, or it was available only to uh, people who'd done psychedelics. Either way, it um, it I either found um, a sneaky back door to to the uh, to the experience, or, or um, Buddhists of the past were familiar with psychedelics and used them to great effect. So. Um, I concluded that I should continue taking psychedelics and continue meditating and perhaps um, find uh, bigger and better uh, experiences. Well, I never did get another experience of Indra's net, um, but uh, no, no matter how much I, I tried repeating the experiment with the same amounts of cannabis tincture and the same amount of psychedelics. I did, however, befriend Nick Sand um, around uh, two, the year 2000. I met him at a Mind State conference and we got on extremely well. And I asked him, was it true that um, they'd actually produced LAD-50 and not LSD-25? The, the suffix of the, with the numbers was purely Albert Hoffman's own personal notation, by the way. LSD was the 25th substance he'd made. LAD was the 50th substance that he'd made from ergotamine. Um, and um, anyway, Nick told me, oh, no, that was just the story we told in court. And um, it was just LSD. We put um, far more in our tablets than anybody else was doing at the time. And that it was at least 350 micrograms. Uh, whereas everybody else was putting like 170, 180 micrograms in this. So, uh, so that, um, that, was, um, that was a turning point for me. I had just recently taken refuge um, and committed myself to being a Buddhist, studying with a, a Tibetan teacher, and um, in fact, I had taken the five precepts. And uh, although some people these days uh, construe the fifth precept as meaning that you wouldn't have, won't take any drugs at all, mine, which was taken in Tibetan, um, said no chang, which is Tibetan beer. So strictly, I mean, uh, there is no word for alcohol in Tibetan. They, they just say chang. And um, so for me, it just meant don't drink alcohol. And for 20 years, 
I didn't until I took the Yinke Gyabshi Dzogchen empowerment in 90, uh, not 1990 or 91, it was, I think it was 1990. And that, um, that says that I, that it gave me a Samaya pledge to take a small quantity of Amrita every day, even if it's only alcohol, which is, um, is kind of um, proof that Amrita was considered as a psychotropic substance. Um, I know that my teacher was a good friend of Chodam uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, who, who said um, that before he left for the United States, he said that he was going to teach Tantra but there was one element he was going to leave out because he knew how Westerners um, misused it and abused it. And I'm pretty sure that that was psychedelic drugs. Um, when, he was, when he was living in London in um, Notting Hill, he uh, was living in a squat with hippies. The, Trungpa was. And um, he would um, tell people that they're not using LSD properly. And he took LSD with them. Uh, but he says, you're not, you, you know, you're not using this stuff correctly. And uh, told them that they were just taking it far, far too lightly. And um, so at the same time, he was telling um middle-aged upper-class women at the Buddhist Society in, in 58 Eccleston Square in London that they really should try LSD. So his attitudes to it were very nuanced, very uh, um, conditioned by the, uh, the um, circumstances. So what was the question? I've forgotten entirely. I've been rambling on for minutes. Not at all. I was asking you about your early upbringing and education. You've you traced a line there through your first experience of psychedelics, uh, having a sort of spiritual, you could say, implication. And that's, that's where we got to. Um, if I might ask you, you knew Trungpa, didn't you? Yes. I believe the first Lama you met was Lama Yungdrong. No, it was actually Trungpa. It was actually Trungpa. And um, I, I remember compiling a long list of questions I was going to ask him and had a private audience with him. And as I sat down with him, all my questions just evaporated. They just like left my mind completely and were utterly irrelevant. And as they disappeared, he burst into laughter. Um, and so um, I just sat with him for a while, asked if I could study with him. And I did study with him for a little while, but then he left for, uh, for the United States. And I, um, I continued my uh, studies with Lama Jungdren, which by the way is, uh, is not his entire name. He is uh, 
Uh, he's better known under another name, but I've um, uh, he he was um, he was very sick when he was a baby, and um, he was cured by a Burmpo doctor who said that he should take another name so that the spirits of illness um, wouldn't be able to find him. And so he gave him a Burmpo name, which he has never used since, but he, can, he, does, he does actually have this name, Jungdrun, which means swastika, by the way. It's Tibetan for swastika. Is there a reason you don't say the name he goes by? More oh yes, I, I just want to. I, I want to um, um, give him some space and allow him to uh, to practice and uh, and teach uh, in his own way without burdening him with um, um, with a bunch of hippies calling him and <laughs> and asking him for. Uh, for teachings, you know, yeah, uh, he has enough students as it is. Um, in 1989, he um, he asked me if I would take over his American students, which I was happy to do. Unfortunately, his American students all wanted a real Tibetan, and so I I, I figured if they weren't interested in Buddhism, I wasn't interested in teaching them. So I've, a lot of questions are coming from what you're saying. Um, perhaps, uh, we'll re perhaps I'll get to the heart of something. You mentioned that you were a part of a generation, or at least adjacent to them, that did a lot of psychedelics and then turned to meditation as a kind of way of naturally accessing the sorts of states that were glimpsed through psychedelic experiences. Of course, transient, when the trip's over, in most cases anyway, the glimpse is, is, is finished. In fact, I can't attribute this story, but I recall uh, someone, a young-ish American Zen enthusiast who was keen to become a monk, a Zen monk, and he was at some monastery in America where they offer that sort of lifestyle. And he was shocked to discover that many of the older, to, older than him anyway, monastics, had taken lots of psychedelics in, in growing up. So he said, the young man said to the monk, how is it possible that after having taken all those psychedelics, you'd enter such an austere life as a Zen monk? And then the Zen monk said, how is it possible uh, that you'd be interested in entering the austere life of a Zen monk having not taken any psychedelics? So I'm curious, and this also ties in a little bit with your experience of Chogyam, this effect he had on you uh, when you met him with your questions. To what do you attribute that effect? And what have you found in this I think generational search for a, a stable or way of attaining these states without psychedelic drugs. Um, well, that's, that that implies that I've not taken any psychedelics since, which is not the case. Uh, um, I think the. The difference between Vajrayana and Mahayana is that Vajrayana uses psychedelics. It's called Amrita in Sanskrit or Dutsi in Tibetan. And these are psychedelic substances. 
Um, I think the essential difference between um, hippies doing a, a bunch of psychedelics and um, Tibetan Buddhists do it, doing it is that the Vajrayana Buddhists were, were given it in a ritual context, usually, um, in either um, an empowerment or in a Gana Chakra, Tsok. Um, and in the empowerment, they would get to a certain stage and um, have the nature of mind pointed out to them when uh, they had reached a certain peak of uh, psychedelic experience, the initiating Lama would say there, right there is, you know, the nature of your own mind. Um, the hippies lacked this entirely and had no um, guru to point out the nature of their own mind. Um, to those who say, oh, Buddhism doesn't use drugs, I would, I would say, well, what's Amrita then? Amrita originated as a, a synonym for um, Soma in the Vedas, in the Rig Veda and so on. Um, and I, I should point out to uh, any hippies watching that this is not Amanita, which is Greek for mushroom. This is Amrita, which is Sanskrit for immortality. And uh, this was originally, um, I think if we look at the Vedas, in particular, the white Yajur Veda, we'll see that there are two kinds of Amrita, which um, are the red form and the white form which something which has persisted into Tantra, the, the uh, complementarity of white and red. Um, but it, this has become um, symbolic of different things, like, for instance, menstrual blood and semen. But um, if we take it back to the Ayurveda, we'll find that there are, um, there are said to be... Um, uh, many kinds of Amrita, many kinds of Rudras, plural, uh, scattered on the face of the earth, including the red Rudras and the blue-throated Rudras. Um, and I believe these to be Amanita muscaria and Psilocybe cubensis. Um, Shiva uh, was... Um, conflated with the original um, Vedic god Rudra, um, possibly because Shiva was the local indigenous Indian uh, drug, Psilocybe cubensis, and Rudra was the introduced Aryan drug of Amanita muscaria. And because they were both mushrooms, they were seen as the same thing. Um, leaping forward a couple of thousand years, and 
in the 14th century, the Gelupa scholar Kadrupte uh, writing about initiations, empowerments, said there are three essential uh, parts of an empowerment. Amrita, the visualization, and the mantra. If any of these are missing, it's just a blessing. But you have to have something which is consumed, either eaten or drunk. That which is the Amrita. And you have to be told the visualization of the deity and that deity's mantra. Um, there are certain writings by Trungpa which, um, which indicate that the Amrita had certain effects and that these effects were timed over the course of the empowerment ceremony and that um, for the first part of the empowerment which there are four phases of an empowerment which are each known as empowerments in their own right for the per first part you drink water and you're told this is special empowerment water which will turn to molten iron in your stomach should you ever betray the secrets the second part you're given the amrita and then in the third and fourth part, the effects of the Amri to become evident. And it's in the fourth part that you have the pointing out um, ceremony. Uh, so it's quite obvious that this, this substance has an effect, an effect which manifests over time and changes its effects as the time progresses. There are some other some other writings um, of um, empowerments and so on, which um, which make this clear that this is this is actually true. And uh, there is one um, empowerment into the uh, the system of Doge Drolo, uh, the um, uh, a fierce form of Padma Sambhava, uh, which says at this point in the initiation, you, you will feel a burning in your abdomen. Um, this is a physical effect. Um, this is not something which is felt with, with the um, yellow liquid of uh, saffron colored water with lots of blessings that were given in most empowerments these days this is an actual potent uh, form of amrita um, so th there is a um, I don't know if you've ever had the uh, the empowerment of the body mandala of chakra samvara in the the tradition of luipa well if you have I would like to discuss it with you because there is a a passage in that uh, empowerment, which seems to be a coded message for how to identify uh, the um, the mushroom. So I'm I'm 
sworn to secrecy as ever with empowerments, but if you've had the same empowerment, we can talk to talk about it um, when we're off the um, the podcast. So uh, there is definitely this um, this use of psychedelics within Vajrayana, and um, it seems to have been very much um diluted and um and um obscured in the, the the way vajrayana is presented to the west there are some lamas who actually do use psychedelic substances in their empowerments and who discuss it um publicly, like Zong Sa Chen Se Rinpoche, wonderful teacher, um, amazing teacher, um, has in a talk he gave in Mexico, um, says that, um, oh, I, I was given a little peyote juice before I came on, but it doesn't seem to have taken effect yet. No, it, it takes two to three hours for peyote to work. So it wouldn't, wouldn't have taken effect yet. <laughs> but um, he is also rumored to have, and I've heard this rumor both in the United States and in Great Britain, uh, to have used ayahuasca as the Amrita in a, uh, a Ghana chakra he conducted in Brazil. So it's kind of... Um, slipping out and um, escaping into the, uh, the, the, the Buddhist world that uh, Amrita is actually a psychedelic. And you make a very comprehensive and multi-themed argument in The Secret Drugs of Buddhism um, for 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 the position you're outlining, and it's it's really far too much for us to dis, to discuss to ad, adequately discuss really in an interesting conversation like this. So if people are interested, I'd recommend getting that book. Uh, you talk about art, the art symbolism. You talk about literature, and you talk about certain practice uh, evidences, if you want, artifacts of uh, psychedelic use, or that could you know you that could point to psychedelic use in things like empowerments. Um, those are just some of the themes you touch on. I'm curious if we could, to return to your biography for a moment, uh, what sort of, if, if we met you at 20 or so, or 21, 22, something like this, what sort of man would we encounter? And how was it that you became a Lama? Uh, could you trace a little bit your, I suppose, Dharma biography and your biography in general uh, from that period, meeting your Lama, Yungjung, encountering, of course, Chogyam, engaging in this exploration? How was it you could, and also I'm very interested, I don't know if this is a separate question. You acquainted yourself, your bio uh, says on the jacket of this book, with Sanskrit, Tibetan and Mandarin Chinese. Uh, that's very interesting. I'd like to ask how that came about also. But could you take us a little bit from your 20s there forward, the key points? When I was about 18, I met Lama Yongdun and um, I actually... It actually came about because I had a neighbor who was um, addicted to uh, jumble sales. 
<laughs> and he had found a um, a purba at a jumble sale. And he would um, go to his jumble sales on Saturday morning, rush around about five or six of them, and just grab everything that was of any value. And uh, um, and come to my place on, well, it was actually um, uh, a friend's place I was staying at in the uh, in a village on the outskirts of London. And he would come by and show us his treasures before he put them away in his attic. And um, uh, he said he, that they were his, um, his old age pension, that he would sell them off in his old age and live on the proceeds. And I, I actually presume him to have had a very, very prosperous old age on the, uh, the, the strength of what he found. And um, he showed me this poba. And he said, I think it's Mexican, don't you? And I said, no, I think it's Tibetan. And he said, no, it's Mexican. And I said, look, I've got a picture of one in a book. I'll show you. And I just borrowed this from the Buddhist Society Library. And it just so happened that I had it on hand at the time. And I showed it to him. And he said, oh, if you're interested in it, then you can have it. And uh, I, I protested, but he said it had only cost him tuppence. And so I took it and I took it to the Buddhist society in Eccleston Square and asked the librarian if they had any books on Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism. Because in, in the book I'd borrowed, it just said Tibetan ritual implement, which didn't help me at all. And the, the librarian, who was a wonderful woman by the name of Pat Wilkinson, who had um, hitchhiked to Southeast Asia in the 1920s to learn meditation. <coughs> and she said, no, you've read both our books on Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> um, that's how many uh, you know, books there were at the time. And... Um, she said, but there's a Tibetan monk who's just moved into London. Um, and if you like, I'll, I'll bring him and see if he'd like to see you. So she called him up and he said, sure, send him over. <clears throat> and an hour later, I was having a cup of tea with him and he was telling me about the Purva. <coughs> so I asked him if I could you know, repeat the process the next week. And from then on, I spent all day Friday with him for about seven years. Wow. Uh, for the next seven years, I would, you see, my, uh, my job finished on Friday morning. I worked um, Sunday evening to Thursday evening. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a bit of cough. It's the smoke outside, I think. And it, anyway, I was his first and only student and had um, an intimate connection with him for, for several years. Um, about three years later, 
on May the 1st, 1970, I took um, refuge with him. In fact, I, I first of all asked if I could uh, take refuge with him. And he immediately, um, and we, we'd been friends. We'd been like personal friends and we'd gone to the, to, to the cinema together and um, things like this. But when I asked if I could uh, take refuge with him, he got up, walked out of the room and came back with eight pages of transliterated Pali and said, learn this, come back when you've learned it. And I was looking, staring at it in astonishment. And he said, no, go, learn it, come back when you've learned it. And I was like, oh, whoa, all right then. And, uh, and so I did. I came back about a month later, having committed it all to memory. And um, he told his, he, he came to the bottom of the, uh, the, the hallway and told his flatmate, go and tell him I'm busy and sent me away. And uh, I came back the next week and I was told, oh no, he's in Scotland. And then on the third time I came back, he invited me in, made me a cup of tea, sat down, chatted, like as, um, as he always used to when we were friends. And um, I said, what about this, this, this refuge ceremony? Aren't you gonna do that? And he said, oh, when do you want to do it? And I said, now. And he said, good. And then, you know, told me uh, what to do. And he left the room, put his robes on, came back and uh, gave me the, um, the, the, the refuge and the five precepts. I still continued to see him every Friday, but it was on a somewhat different basis now. I was his student, his, still his first ever student. And uh, this was before Tibetan Buddhism had really lodged in the public um, consciousness. And, uh, um, and so I, I had his, his entire attention all day Friday. Um, there was a point where um, uh, Suzuki Roshi, who founded the uh, San Francisco Zen Center, stayed with him for about uh, uh, six or seven weeks and taught him some koan. And so I learned uh, the, the, um, the meaning of, um, of koan from, from Suzuki Roshi, um, such as uh, the... the one of the very, very first koans that you ever learn is, should you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. And um, this was explained as meaning that if you meet the Buddha on the road, he's an imposter because there is only one Buddha and that's you. So, um, that's why you kill all 
external uh, Buddhas. The, the, the only Buddha that you should worry about is the uh, Tathagagarbha, the, uh, the Buddha nature, your own personal Buddha nature, which is in, in, in you, in yourself. Um, I continued studying, and uh, uh, he founded his own um, uh, center um, in the countryside, and I would go there and retreat, and I, um, I did various retreats there, and when I had finished, when I had completed my course of retreats, that you know that before you become a lama, you're supposed to do three years, three months, three days in retreat. And it took me a while to complete uh, my retreats. But when I had, he um, conferred the um, um, the, the, the lamahood, if you like, on me and... Um, I performed a Ghana chakra with my teacher as my attendant, and um, he recognized me as his equal then. And so from then on, I was a llama. Um, that was that was January the first, a nineteen eighty eight. Gosh, incredible! What was the course of study? over those seven years, if you were also completing the three-year retreat, presumably that would include more or less the full cycle of, it sounds like Karma Kashi teachings, including the six yogas of Naropa, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you're nodding. Right. Well, that was main, the, the main subject of the retreat was the, the, the six yogas of Naropa. Um, other, <coughs> excuse me, other um, more scholastic um, study was um, was acknowledged and recognized, but not not given as much emphasis as the actual practice of the yogas. He actually gave me a. Um, uh, pointing out instruction um, on the final day of my my retreat by pressing his forehead to mine for about five minutes and um, merging his mind with my own. Um, <coughs> and from then on, he said, uh, uh, "Okay, no more, no more tricks, no more games, no more tests. You, you've done it." Remarkable. I'm curious if you can recall uh, which of the aspects of your training uh, had the most profound impact on you. If that's even if that's even the correct way to conceive of it, thinking of you know you're born in in Wales in Cardiff, and uh, inducted one-on-one -on -one in that old way into this uh, lineage uh, it's really quite a remarkable story and actually extremely unusual even for english or american converts 
to Tibetan Buddhism to go about it in that way. I think it's that's a very unusual. So I'm curious about that. And also, you know, Six Yogas of Naropa, I think, and that that sort of idea, um, and in particular the practice of Tummo, has become increasingly widely known and popular. I'm wondering if you what you think about that, um, and if you have any any comments on Tummo in that context. Um, well, I practice Tummo, um, and it's it's really the foundational practice of the Six Yogas that you have to get that down before you can study any of the others. Um, there were various astonishing um, effects from the, uh, um, the dream yoga. Um, the, the, the dream yoga is really, um, similar to the practice of lucid dreaming. And um, it's kind of like lucid dreaming on steroids because you're given tests, you're given um, things to get done while you're, you're dreaming lucidly. And um, it's... Um, there, there were various... Um, uh, astonishing results, which I'm not sure that I'm I'm really at liberty to share. If um, if you've had um, Anutra Yoga Tantra empowerments, uh, we can discuss it between our, um, we two. But I'm not sure that it's quite suitable for um, uh, for the uh, general consumption. Um, I actually had my final um, um, dream yoga experience while on pilgrimage to um, Rewatsenga, the um, the five peak mountain in China. Um, it's called. Um, um, it's called Riwotsinga in Tibetan, um, and it's uh, it's considered to be the uh, um, the next most important pilgrimage site after Bodh Gaya, um, the the Buddha's enlightenment place, and um, I, um, I I dreamt of a of a Brazilian um, there is there is a Brazilian religion called Umbanda, which is a, a form of African religion uh, with a kind of slight overlay of Catholicism. And um, I dreamt of um, a, a Teheru, which is a, a temple of Umbanda in Berkeley in California. And um, while I was dreaming it, I thought, hang on, I'm not in California, I'm in China. <laughs> and uh, I had a, uh, uh, I had a various um, uh, 
revelations in the dream, which uh, I, when I got back to California, I was living in California at the time, I looked up the guy, the Tibetan guy who ran the uh, Teherum, and, and told him, um, I had a funny dream about you. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I said, you've got a 10-year-old son, haven't you? And his face dropped. And he, he said, quick, we, we have to go into another room and discuss this. Because <laughs> he did. But he had kept quiet about it in California and not told anyone about it. And um, so this um the the dream was um you know showed me a reality which was more real than the the, the guy was letting on um so that was that's one of the effects of the the, the dream yoga um yeah there were other certain uh astonishing effects which you know as i say we can discuss but uh um, um the actual the actual domo um takes about a week to um to really take hold and it was the middle of winter people were shivering as they they did the you know their practices and uh, you could tell when they got the domo right because they'd suddenly stopped shivering and were were walking around in their shirt sleeves and uh, uh as if it was a summer day um so um yeah it, it works um i have uh, i've put the um the, the um vase breathing part of tomo in my new book i've described how to do that but i have not gone the full way with explaining uh how you ignite the fire in your your central channel and so on um and then send the fire as a fire out through the nadis to the the extremities i've left that out um, because that is described in other books. And if people are that interested, they can look it up. Hmm. But it's, uh, I'm, um, I basically uh, um, aimed the uh, Buddhism for psychonauts at your average hippie and not somebody who is um, so thoroughly into it that he... He needs to find out about how to do Dumo, mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, uh, means the fierce woman, which is um, called Chandali in uh, Sanskrit and is considered equivalent to Shakti, which is the activated form of Kundalini. When people talk about the uh, kundalini experience and they usually call it kundalini which is quite wrong um uh they they are actually what they actually mean is the shakti experience she is kundalini when she's coiled and dormant at the base of your spine uh when she uncoils and reveals herself she's called shakti but this is this is mere quibbling um 
about words, which is also um, one of my uh, one of my preoccupations is words and quibbling about them. But uh, I uh, I used to um, I used to have a uh, um, a website about etymology and the origins of words, um, which um, I find interesting. Uh, but again, it's uh, um, the the actual meaning, which is the uh, the, the most relevant part. Hmm. It seems a fascination with etymology in English, anyway, leads one to Latin and Greek. Inevitably, you can't avoid it, really. And you yourself, with your passion for Buddhist studies and Buddhism, acquainted yourself, you've said, with many uh, of its source languages also, Sanskrit, Tibetan, and Mandarin Chinese, to be specific. So I'm curious, actually, how that part came about. Also, I am actually curious, as an aside, if you have any Latin or Greek, and if so, how you acquired it. High school. High school. Uh, um, I, did, um, I did four years of Latin and six months of Greek in high school. Um, as for Sanskrit, I was sitting next to someone on the tube in London, and uh, this, uh, there was an elderly gentleman sitting next to me reading a book in um, um, printed in, in Devanagari, which is the alphabet used in Sanskrit most commonly. And I said, excuse me, you, is that Sanskrit you're reading? And he said, yes, it could have been Hindi, you know, because it's used in modern Indian languages too. I said, cool, will you teach me? And so um, I got teaching from um, a retired professor of the uh, Benares um, Sanskrit University teaching me every Tuesday for an hour. Um, and I got to learn Chinese through doing Taiji Chuan. Uh, there was a small ad advertising Taiji Chuan teachings in um, Time Out or City Limits, one of those. And I followed that up and uh, was given an interview. And they, in the interview, they said, well, why do you want to learn this? And I told them and... Uh, they said, well, do you realize you'll have to learn eight subjects, not just martial arts, but, you know, also language, painting, philosophy. And so I said, that sounds great. I'll do it. And so language was one of the topics which um, the, the, the teacher, Master Liu, who was a Taoist master, um, taught and... Um, so that's how I, I studied Sanskrit and Mandarin. Tibetan, I learned from um, Lama Yongjun where, um, in exchange for me teaching him English. So um, it was uh, like a two-way street. Um, early on, there was absolutely nothing, well, very, very little written about Tibetan Buddhism. And... Um, most of what was written was abject nonsense. I actually uh, read um, 
um, The Third Eye by Lobsang Rampa because my teacher had been told about this so many times by people that um, he really wanted to find out about it, but his English wasn't good enough. So he asked me to uh, to read it for him and, and give it to him in a um, condensed manner. Um, and in doing so, I came across um, Lobsang Rampa's like description of um, of Tibetan medicines, and he says, "Oh, oh, these following six plants are the major Tibetan medicines, but they don't have English equivalents. So I'll just give you their." Uh, um, binomials, well, I think you said Latin names, which um, they're usually mostly Greek. Anyway, um, they were identical to the six plants mentioned in um, the Buddhism of Tibet by uh, Erwin Schlagentweit, published in 1861, which I had a copy of and had read several times and um, the, the first one in the list was allium sativum which is garlic and if he didn't know what that was in english he shouldn't be writing the book in english because that was so well known so um, we we had a good laugh over that as well as his um his stories about being flown aloft on a giant kite and uh, having a physical uh, operation to open his third eye and all this nonsense which is like not bad when you consider he was just a plumber from Yeovil um, but, <laughs> uh, but really it was sheer invention you know uh, as I was reading rereading your book in preparation for our conversation a bit of a wild thought occurred to me and i wonder what you make of this and something you've just said is has tapped it again it's commonly said that when lsd was banned in the united states stanislav grof who had been experimenting with it for use for various uses including addiction and uh, et cetera, et cetera, yeah somehow came up with holotropic breathing as a way of yeah, replicating yeah. some of the effects of, of LSD, which was at that point no longer at least legally available for him to use in therapeutic contexts. And it occurred to me, as you were writing about the, in your view that you lay out in the, in the Secret Drugs of Buddhism, really essential uh, use of psychedelics in Vajrayana, it occurred to me uh, that I thought, gosh, well, Tumo, uh, this is why it's a wild thought, not particularly well thought out maybe. Tumo is, of course, a breath uh, retention technique, among other things, as part of it, and one of its objectives, it, it, it's it's sometimes said, is to create, should we say, psychological effects, or perhaps some sort of state of mind to induce some sort of state of mind, perhaps uh, union of bliss and emptiness, or whatever the case may be. So I wondered if Tumo and other uh, methods like it uh, were, in a certain sense, like. Uh, holotropic breathing could be seen as another means of achieving or at least an attempt to achieve what LSD was doing in terms of in Groff's case. If Tumo and other such practices could have been, in a certain sense, psychedelic sacrament substitutes. Uh, but from what you're telling me, 
you've included in your psychedelic Buddhist book coming up, how to combine certain Buddhist practices with psychedelic use, that I, I, if, if fast breathing is in there, then I assume you're combining it in that book with some sort of psychedelic substance and not as a substitute. So I'm curious what you make of that wild thought that occurred to me. Well, I've had the same thought that um, pranayama could be um, a form of uh, psychedelic substitute. And, um, and the Tibetan Salong practices um, too. Um, I have no um, concrete evidence that this is in fact the case, but it does seem to be very suggestive of the um, um, of that perhaps psychedelics were involved in the origin of pranayama, salong, and so on. Um, I've met Stan Groff a few times, and um, um, I don't necessarily uh, agree with his um, his theories about. Um, the psychedelic experience all being a, a replay of your um, your birth and and so on, uh, but uh, certainly his uh, his uh, invention of holotropic breathing does seem to be very valuable. Um, I am actually a friend of um, um, one of his colleagues. So, um, uh, by the name of Jim Fadiman, um, who uh, <laughs> we were once talking about Stan and his use of psychedelics, and Jim said, of course, um, Stan was very fond of, um, of the use of multiple psycholytic experiences that he would give his subjects uh, psycholytic doses of, um, of LSD, whereas I am uh, more of the opinion that one big uh, psychedelic dose is, um, is what's needed. And I, I said to him, well, what kind of dosage do you reckon it counts as psycholytic? And where's the where's the dividing line between the two? And he said, "Oh, psycholytic is anything um, uh, like five hundred mics or lower." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, he was actually very um, uh, gratified when I told him about the the uh, Dzogchen um, Samaya pledge to take a small amount of Amrita every day, as he saw this as an ancient validation of his um, um, microdosing uh, regimen that, um, that the, the Tibetans were um, microdosing their Amrita. Um, if you read uh, the autobiography of um, of uh, Rabjam Longchenpa, um, 
you'll see the very first Gana chakra that he led. Um, it was absolutely chaotic with, um, uh, with, with people uh, speaking with the voices of, of um, divinities and, um, and um, women, nuns and lay women speaking um, as if they were Vajrayogini and so on. Um, and it just seems to me that perhaps he underestimated the strength of the Amrita he was using. That this that they may have been, you know, fully psychedelicized by the uh, the use of um, of Amrita and um, and he he um, being a novice to like leading a Ghana chakra had not diluted it properly. You know, I actually know I've 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 spoken with somebody who in the 21st century um, drank a bottle, uh, which he assumed was alcohol, as he was an alcoholic at the time. And it turned out to be Amrita Concentrate. And he had visions for five days of Dakinis giving him teachings. Wow. And uh, he was told that by the Lama who actually owned the bottle of Amrita Concentrate, that he should disregard all these teachings as he hasn't, hadn't had the appropriate empowerments yet. Which I think is somewhat unfair if the uh, Dakinis had gone to all the trouble to teach him about <laughs> and that, well, the... But that is that, that's a case of um, of Tibetan lamas actually using real Amrita in an, in um, uh, in um, empowerments and so on. Um, that um, maybe what we are being given is just diluted so much that we feel no effects. But as he had got hold of a bottle of concentrate, um, that he, he got it in spades. You know, one of the aspects of your argument that I uh, liked aesthetically was your, one of the images you point to is thousand-armed Chenrezig with the uh, thousand arms there in a sort of halo in a certain sort of sense uh, behind the figure which is reminiscent uh, in your view or points to or suggests the underside of a mushroom. And, you know, you're talking there about encounters with divinities and entities and so on and so forth. And you, another part, part of your argument, which I enjoyed aesthetically also, was your explanation of the emergence of tantric deities like Kali, etc., from the, the sort of Vedic milieu and how that could point perhaps to the sort of imagery suggested by the introduction of a different type of psychoactive substance, producing a different sort of category or set or, or style of, of visionary experience. If I've understood that argument correctly, at least that's what I took from it. I don't know if you're up to it, if you could perhaps talk a little bit in more detail about that, the emergence of those deities and what in specific about their appearances do you see as being indicative of that kind of different set of 
of visionary material. And also, actually, if you yourself have had encounters uh, with deities or with entities, either in your uh, practice, in your practice or your journeys, uh, psychedelic uh, journeys, etc. And if so, what have the significance of those encounters been? Um, well, it's um, a cluster of pretty good questions. Um, to answer the last one first, I have not actually encountered any deities per se in my um, my psychedelic experiences. I have encountered entities, um, particularly after smoking DMT, um, but they were mostly of the form of leprechauns or some other mischievous, like imps and um, um, pixies and so on, that um, and that were like tempting me away from the uh, from the path, away from um, focusing on the the clear white light and so on. Um, as for the evolution of um, of deities, from um, new substances which were discovered, um, well, the oldest Veda, the oldest scripture that is still in use by any uh, religion worldwide, is the Rig Veda. Um, and there are three other Vedas after that. Sama Veda was just the Brig Veda rearranged in the order in which it was used in the, um, the Soma ceremony. Um, the Yajur Veda uh, was a commentary on the Rig Veda. There are actually two Yajur Vedas, the white and the black. And the uh, Tarva Veda was um, a bunch of spells and um, um, protective incantations to protect one against um, untoward manifestations of the, the, the Godhead, which may appear to you. So the after the Vedas, um, we actually come across the writings of, well, there's Vedanta, which means the end of the Vedas, anta meaning end. It's actually the same word as English, basically. And um, the Puranas are endlessly fascinating collections of myths and legends. And in the Puranas, it says that um, all the gods, uh, Vishnu, Brahma, and so on, are all derived from the one-legged Shiva, Shiva Ekapada, um, who is um, uh, sometimes the, the, they are actually shown as Shiva with one leg, and the other gods are separating themselves from him. Now, this um, one-leggedness is often said to be an indication or a, a, um, a 
a depiction really of a mushroom. Um, and um, Shiva has many, many connections to the Psilocybe cubensis mushroom. I list them in the in the book. Um, so one of the um, uh, the deities which I seize upon in the, in the book is the female deity uh, Ushnisha Sita Trapatra, who um, whose name means the the crown bump pale. Um, well, parasol deity. Um, so, parasol um, atapatra and umbrella chatra were the common ways of referring to the mushroom in Sanskrit. Um, how did you speak of a mushroom directly without any allusion to parasols and, and, and umbrellas? Well, you couldn't. The, these words had been expunged from Sanskrit. They weren't included in Sanskrit when Sanskrit was created. And by the way, Sanskrit is not a natural language. It was a created language and um, such things as an irregular verbs and someone were all straightened out when the Sanskrit was created from the five languages of the Arya. And it was intended to be a lingua franca of um, um, members of the five Aryan tribes who um, migrated into India about um, uh, 1500 BC. Um, now, this this deity, this female deity, Ushnisa Sita Tapatra, um, has this this aureole of um, of arms around her. She has a thousand arms and a billion eyes, um, um, and carries a white parasol. Um, it's the white parasol which is the the um, the most important part of her attributes. And she, uh, interestingly, um, protects against um, uh, overly aggressive generals and, uh, and warlike kings and so on, which is something we could do with these days, I think. Um, um, which is... Uh, you know, often um, seen as a uh, um, an effect of psychedelics, as that you, you're no longer bamboozled by these appeals to uh, patriotism and uh, and uh, and you know reasons to go to war against other other groups of human beings. Um, and so. Um, the, the 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 first element of her name Ushnisha means the the crown bump, which is seen on Buddhas, the the bump on top of their head, which 
I've actually written a paper on this, which is um, which was published in um, um, Time and geez, I've forgotten the name of it now. It's an archaeology um, journal, uh, Time and Mind, um, and um, I point out that. Um, there was a, a group of Ushnisha deities which were very popular in the Indian Middle Ages, um, uh, but nobody seems to know what they were about. And I, uh, I point out the, uh, the, the similarity to the bump on the top of psilocybe mushrooms, particularly psilocybe cubensis. However, when these deities reached Japan in the ninth century, they actually gave them a list of, um, of different kinds of, of uh, the deities. There was a, an off-white one and a slightly yellow one. And, you know, these are not tantric colors. The tantric colors are, you know, um, black, white, yellow, blue, green, red. They're, they're distinct, bright um, colors and not these various um, shades and tints which were described um, with the mushrooms and the, with these, the, these deities, the Ushnisha deities, which seem to be more like the uh, colors you'd see in a, in a field guide. Um, and uh, I, I believe that these were, um, were various kinds of mushrooms, various um, different species of psilocybe mushroom. All the psilocybes, by the way, have um, an umbo, a bump on the, the cap. It might be um, pointed, it might be rounded and whatever, but they've all got one. Um, there is, um, there is even a, um, um, a version of Hayagriva, the horse neck god or the horse headed god, who in embracing his consort grasps her breast. Now, some, um, some psilocybe mushrooms have what's called a papillonate umbo, which means a nipple-shaped umbo. And I believe that this is what this uh, grasping the breast alludes to. And it's only this one particular deity which does that. Um, so uh, I believe there were... Um, different forms of Shiva, um, which were all, uh, well, many of them were absorbed into Buddhism and given their names like um, in Nepal, the wrathful form of Shiva uh, is called Bhairava, the terrifier. Now, uh, some particularly strong mushrooms can be described as terrifying when you take them. In Buddhism, he was given the prefix Vajra, which is basically uh, a way of saying the Buddhist terrifier. 
and he's um, shown with a, a buffalo head, often riding on a buffalo. This, I believe, is an allusion to a particular mushroom uh, called Paneolus cambogeniensis, which is small, um, exceptionally potent, and grows exclusively on water buffalo dung. When this deity was introduced to Tibet, it was um, it was um, particularly uh, denigrated because of its having an animal head. Um, although these days he's a, uh, a protector of the Gelugpa lineage, um, but didn't have an easy introduction to Tibet. Um, so um, Shiva was introduced as Isha, Isana, um, Vajra, Bhairava, um, Mahakala, various different um, deities were um, derived from, oh, and actually Avalo, uh, Avalokiteshvara too, because um, he uh, was assimilated into a, a local deity called Lokeshvara, the lord of the place in India. And when he was imported into Buddhism, he was given um, many uh, Buddhist um, meanings to his attributes. But you'll see that in the uh, um, 11 headed thousand armed form, he actually keeps several of Rudra's um, attributes the deer skin shawl, the, um, the, the flask of Amrita, the bow and arrow, these are all um, attributes of Rudra. And um, he is even still said to have a blue throat like Shiva, who um, uh, developed his blue throat at the churning of the ocean, um, a very popular Hindu myth of the origin of Amrita. Um, Although Avalokiteshvara is said to have got his blue throat by eating the poisons of attraction, repulsion, and um, ignorance, which um, is a rather peculiar statement that you can actually develop physical effects from eating these uh, philosophical poisons. So that's um, that that's a synopsis of my um, my um, attitude to um, the the deities. Well, there's also there are also others like Tara, who seems to be a form of Ishtar, who um, like Ishtar was also the planet Venus, and like Ishtar was worshipped in acacia groves and acacia um, called Kadira in Sanskrit, Acacia Katachu, um, is uh, an abundant source of DMT. Um, as such, she would have to have been consumed with a, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor 
Um, but there are plenty of those around, uh, including Syrian rue, which is part of Ayurvedic medicine. Um, yeah, well, there you go. Next question, please. <laughs> Fabulous, yeah. I'm aware of the time. Do you have enough puff for a couple more questions? Absolutely. Oh, great. Given what you're saying, and you do make the case that psychedelic sacrament is an essential part of Vajrayana, actually. Given that there are many people uh, around the world, and perhaps many people listening to this, who will be practitioners or consider themselves to be practitioners of Vajrayana or initiates of Vajrayana through some means or another, who won't have done so within the context of any kind of psychedelic use. Um, maybe they've they've done that outside of that context, or maybe they haven't, but it's not really been something that's been a part of their Vajrayana training or Vajrayana initiation. If you're right, what are the implications for Vajrayana practitioners around the world, teachers of Vajrayana around the world who are teaching on the basis of the training they receive, which had no reference to any psychedelic compounds at all, et cetera, et cetera. What are the implications for their practice and, and for what their, their activities really? Well, I think they should read my next book. And um, I just have to say, well, what's Amrita then? Um, why do we ingest this pale yellow fluid? What's that supposed to do for you? And um, well, read the Tibetan text like Kadrugje and... Um, and Long Chempa, just you know, do your research. Don't restrict it to what your teacher is telling you. And um, uh, these, um, um, like, what are all these versions of Shiva for? Um, and um, it's not just me. I didn't make it up. I didn't make up these. The fact that these are all versions of Shiva. You can, you can check the, uh, the, um, the textbook of Buddhist iconography. It's called uh, the um, the Dictionary of Buddhist Iconography by Lokesh Chandra. It's um, it's in. 15 volumes and runs to about 27,000 pages. And he gives details of, um, of the origins of, of all of these deities. Even, even um, Amitabha, which is normally, normally explained as being um, limitless light. Well, that would be true if it were from Sanskrit, but it's not. It's from Prakrit, um, and it means the light of Amrita. Um, and so, I would I would recommend to to anybody who is um, uh, rejecting these um, uh, these allegations of psychedelic use, I would say go and do your research, go and study um, where these deities came from and um, and why did Kadrugje say that all um, empowerments had to have Amrita or it's just a blessing. Um, these 
were expected to have specific effects. Um, so, um, there, and, and check out like, teachers like Zong Sa Chen Se who speaks quite openly about psychedelics and their use and says, he literally says, um, we have ways of using these substances. And if you don't believe me, I can give you page numbers in the tantras. Um, so um, it's it's there. It's it's not hidden. It's literally in the uh, in the old texts. And if you read them, you'll 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 see it's quite spelled out quite explicitly. Very often they're in. Um, they are um, hidden in, in coded language, um, but um, often enough, it's just open and, uh, and, and quite explicit. When I say implications, partly what I mean is if we accept that you're right, what are the implications for those who've been practicing Vajrayana without psychedelic uh, use uh, either in the impairment or, or in their own practice. What have they been doing in your view? What's left without that, as you say, essential element? Well, they've been preparing themselves for a great treat when they try psychedelics. <laughs> they, um, as long as they're, they're not like closed minded and just rejecting it and saying, no, 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 this is the right way and so on. Um, they have been preparing themselves for the revelation that they are going to find um, that they are in fact already enlightened. And um, but they shouldn't um, come back from their their um, their experiences saying, "Look, I've discovered I, the great I, am enlightened, and you're not." You know that they, they they should, you know greet this um this revelation with humility and uh, and um understand that every sentient being is actually um enlightened that they're they're at the core of their being that you know it's uh um it's part of voidness and of um emptiness that uh, I I try to um, make the the term nothingness more accessible by calling it no thingness. There's stuff, but there aren't any things. There's the, like the, there's the universal like um, quality of stuff. It's all around us. Everything is some kind of stuff. But don't don't split it up into things and into into kinds of stuff, if you like. But um, um, it's that realization which leads to the um, the discovery that we are in fact all enlightened. Um, and if we just uncover that. But then we uh, we reveal our enlightenment. Um, we just shouldn't um, 
cling to these um, uh, gems of revelation and uh, use it to uh, adorn the tinsel crowns of ego. Um, that's all I have to say. Hmm. One of the themes of Vajrayana, I think, that's commonly discussed is this idea of transforming poisons into wisdom. Poisons often interpreted as transforming glaciers into wisdom, some sort, you know, anger into a sort of wisdom, for example, fear into a sort of wisdom. And so one of the ways that that's prescribed uh, that I've read about, that I've heard about, is that there are certain deities that represent some of those energies. And um, uh -huh. if one in sort of embodies that uh, through the practice of deity yoga, for example, that's one means of alchemizing, if you like, um, the, the, the negative aspects of anger into, into some sort of clarity, for instance, or whatever the case may be. I'm wondering how, in your view, psychedelics would play into that, or if that's uh, something related but separate. Um, it is related, and um, I don't see that any um, separation is actually valid at all. Um, anger, you mentioned, um, if, if you get angry and can use your um, meditative skills that you developed in meditation and examine that anger dispassionately, uh, without becoming involved in the anger, without saying, yes, I was right to be angry, I really should be angry, and so on. These are the um, hangers-on to that emotion, the, um, the, the self-validation the, uh, uh, the, that comes up as part of the emotion. Um, if you can view the anger, if you can look at the anger in its eyes, as it were, you will see that the anger is nothing but an, a manifestation of a, of a mental energy, which is called the mirror-like wisdom. It's called mirror-like because anger is very clear. You know exactly how to hurt the person that you're angry at, and you know exactly why you're angry and why you should be angry and so on. But um, if you can let go of all that, you just have this, this mental energy. Um, similarly, um, lust is the discriminating wisdom. You know, well, I'm attracted to her, but not to her. And you see very clearly the, uh, the distinction between them. And that's that discrimination manifests as you know, as a kind of wisdom, and that's the uh, the wisdom of um, of discrimination. So, um, um, the essential part of this is to, um, if you're going to allow yourself to indulge in these these strong emotions, um, not to hang on to the emotion um, when it appears 
you can let the emotion into your heart. You can um, allow it to um, sit with you for as long as, uh, as it needs to, but when it leaves, don't hang on to its coattails. Don't invite it back for a cup of tea. Just let it go. And you can, you can see it come, increase, and then dissipate without, um, without hanging on to it. Um, this, is, this is how you manifest the energies of, uh, of uh, the emotions without uh, indulging in the emotions themselves. I've sometimes, uh, this is another wild thought, Mike. I've sometimes thought of emotions like that, anger, fear, lust, etc., as being a sort of intoxication in the sense that when you're in the grip of them, one loses IQ points. <laughs> one loses uh, the sense of um, consequence in the same way if, if, you, if you have a drink, say you might do something that you'd later regret. You think, how could I have been so stupid? Well, you weren't thinking um, in that sense of time. Mm -hmm. And I'm... Um, I've also heard it said that one of the uses of psychedelic or deliberate intoxication of any means is to learn to navigate lucidly the intoxicated state, to retain a sense of awareness in the midst of the intoxicated state. I wonder if there's any corollary there between the intoxication of strong emotion and the intoxication of a substance. If there's any carryover in the way one can learn to retain a sense of lucidity in intoxication from a substance, if that, that has any carryover into the bad trip of a strong negative emotion. That's an interesting thought. I've actually not thought of it that way. But I'm sure um, I'm sure that's um, that does have a certain validity. Um, if you excuse me not answering it directly, I'll have to uh, have to give it some thought before I do. Um, it, um, yes, that, it, it does seem to be true. Um, I have to um, um, just sit with that, that idea for a, a day or two before I can actually answer it. A lot of bad ideas initially seem to be true, so I don't think this is a good start. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my last question then. I know you're, you've mentioned that you were uh, also investigating Taoism, training in Tai Chi Chuan with Master Liu, and you, you've told a, a great story uh, elsewhere of encountering a 12,000-year-old meditator in China who started meditating when he was 99, and then presumably 1,101 years later, you encountered him on Zhou Hassan Mountain. But... I'm curious, one of the features of Taoism or one of its methods is this internal alchemy, this idea of internal alchemy. I'm mm -hmm. wondering, and, and indeed, sometimes the use of certain substances. I'm wondering if you've uh, explored those and uh, experientially or in, in a scholarly sense, and if you have any comparison then between your experience of Tumo uh, as, or Tsalung Tigle of various kinds, which is a sort of inner alchemy of, of types, or is a little bit corollary, I think, maybe, at least at first glance. If you've compared them at all, or if you have any comments about, about the, those two uh, technologies. Um, mm, I've, not, I've not actually taken any um, Taoist drugs, although I'm quite convinced that they, 
these uh, substances do exist. Um, they are generally said to be compounded um, and so are not just one single substance. Um, the, um, the Taoist drug called Lin Chi, which we now generally know by the Japanese equivalent of Reishi, is the, um, the, the mushroom called uh, Ganoderma lucidum. But the identification of Lin Chi with this mushroom was a purely political act by um, a, an emperor um, from the Warring States period who um, had an extension built on his palace and then the Ganoderma mushroom grew out of the wood used for the extension. And he said, oh, look, it's the, the Lin Chi mushroom, which is uh, uh, much loved of the gods. They are obviously shining upon my, uh, my endeavors. And, and just um, by political fiat declared that this was the actual Lin Chi mushroom. And um, from earlier writings, it just, it, the, the term Lin Chi just means magic mushroom, literally, and uh, was probably uh, the Amanita muscaria mushroom. Um, it is possible that it was a psilocybe mushroom, but psilocybe uh, uh, um, uh, argentipes or um, uh, one of the psilocybes which grows in China. Um, a, um, a Taoist emperor once sent an expedition to the, uh, the lands of the West to, um, to find the mushroom, but the people never came back. I think because they didn't find it, they probably got themselves you know, lost somewhere and uh, and didn't admit that they they like spent all this money and not found the mushroom. But um, um, yeah, the the analogies between the internal alchemy. Well, um, I think you can find analogies, but they're not entirely explicit. They're not. Um, the, the meridians of uh, Chinese medicine and so on do not line up with the nadis of, um, of Indian Tantra. Um, and there are no chakras in uh, Chinese medicine either. Um, it's, it's, well, you might call the Dandian, which is the uh, which is a center in the abdomen. You might call that a chakra, um, but they 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 certainly don't line up precisely with the chakras of the of the uh, Indian um, sort. However, um, certain practices of alchemy do. Um, there is a the. If you read the um, 
book called The 84 Mahasiddhas. One of the characters is actually the last um, Mahasiddha in the book is not, in fact, a Buddhist. He is a Hindu. His name is Vyali. And he discovers how to make Amrita. And um, part of his story is that he, um, he sells the secret to Nagarjuna um, for one magic sandal. Nagarjuna wouldn't sell him both magic sandals. Uh, he needed to get around. Um, but uh, um, Viali gave the uh, Amrita to his wife and to his horse. And they are all supposed to be still living on some far-flung island. Um, um, this, this kind of um, um, creation of Amrita from, from plants is part of, of Taoist folklore and literature. And if you read The Journey to the West, um, you will read about early on in the book, uh, Lao Tzu is, um, is making his magic pills of immortality in like exactly the same word as, uh, as Buddhists use. Amrita means immortality. And um, it's, it's actually as part of the, uh, the humor of the journey to the West is that um, monkey is absolutely insatiable for all forms of Amrita, all forms of uh, uh, Im immortality. Eats the um, uh, the peaches of immortality, and later he's he's um, um, he eats all of uh, Lao Tzu's um, uh, immortality pills too. Um, so that's another story which has very, very um, uh, interesting um, elements to it. Is the story of the um, of Shi Mu, the royal mother of the West, who is the um, the owner of the peach tree orchard of with the peaches of immortality. Um, and we could probably go on for another uh, podcast episode completely in examining her relation to um, um, to the Assyrian queen uh, Semiramis and and how she shares um, elements with Semiramis, who is actually that's her Greek name. Um, her name was more similar to Simu Ramat. And um, she had a palace on the top of a mountain next to a lake, um, just like Shiwongmu. And they were both, the, the, both their mountains were close to a lake. And the, the historian uh, Diodorus Siculus, the twin from Cyprus, um, describe the story of Simu Ramat and said that she lived next to a, a lake of weak water, and just like the Chinese do about uh, Shi Wang Mu. 
And, um, and the difference is that one, um, the, the Greeks say that uh, the water was so weak it wouldn't support a peacock's feather. And um, the, the Chinese say that it wouldn't support a swan's feather. Um, very, very mysterious. This, um, uh, these, um, the, these two stories about this powerful warrior queen of the Assyrians. Um, but uh, um, th that's something that I was researching with a friend of mine who unfortunately died a few years ago, and we never did get to the bottom of it. But um, Fascinating stuff, nonetheless. Also connected to the uh, Tibetan assertion that in the West there are lands of the the tiger and the leopard, the the tiger people and the leopard clan. Um, and in Tibet, the word for Persia is tiger leopard, Tazik, and. We have people called Tajikis, which seem to have inherited this uh, de this designation. Um, all very mysterious and um, just waiting to be investigated. Mysterious indeed. Oh, Mike, this has been so fascinating. I'd love to have a follow-up conversation uh, one day, perhaps uh, upon the release of your next book, which you think is perhaps coming in the fall. Perhaps. Um, I think the way things are going at the moment, it's more likely to be spring next year, but um, it's got to be published by Inner Traditions. Oh, wonderful. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Mike Crowley, thank you very much. And thank fun. you. It's, it was fun. I'm a musician and composer as well as, uh, you know, I, I play a lot of instruments. Um, I... Um, I've just picked up this just um, yesterday. Oh, yeah. So, um, wow. Um, You're pretty adept at that for 24 hours. Yeah, well, I, I, it's the latest in a collection of them. I have a whole bunch of them here, like, um, like this one, which is made out of a tomato can. Tomato, I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> which is from Burkina Faso. Um, so um, th that's one of my favorites for the for the the the, the tone that it gets. Yeah. That's um, oh, beautiful. Um, I also play flute, like. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.